In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Yeah, definitely concerns. All right, returning to work. It's um, there's, a, there's a lot of safety precautions already taken on site. Um, we do already wear a lot of PPE. Uh, externally, I feel quite safe. Internally, it can get a little bit congested in certain, certain areas of the building, but it's up to yourself to remove yourself from those situations and just look after yourself. Are you afraid that you may contract COVID-19 on the site and then bring it back to your family? Um, yeah, I think it's the worry this week, yeah. It's definitely more worrying the numbers are not a lot higher. And that would be a concern, especially with parents and my mother-in-law that being our lady, so you definitely have to be minding them, you know. What impact would it have on you, though, if construction sites were to close down? I suppose people's health has to come first. So if it meant financially lose now for a couple of weeks, well, yeah, I'd accept that. I think it's stupid. Like, back in March, I have 700 people again a day in our closing sites. We're going to do it right. We're going to shut the whole country down. You might as well shut down building sites as well. Uh, well, obviously, there's a bit of worry there. 5,000 new cases on and everything like that, but well, I wasn't, really, wasn't really worried about work. It was just more the fact of coming in and it being crowded as usual. What's it like in there? Is it crowded? Ah, uh, well, it's not It's not too bad just because it's a big site, but there is a lot of heads up there. Now, so there is. And what do you think? Should sites be closed yeah, at the minute? should definitely be closed, especially with the amount of cases. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, did you know that walking, yes, plain and simple walking, unlocks the cognitive powers of the brain? Yes, as simple as that. Well, on Thursday, Jonathan Healy spoke to neuroscientist and author Shane O'Mara for The Heart Shoulder. What is it about when we're walking? I mean, for me, uh, and I speak from my own experience because it's all I have, um, I think more. Uh, You know, the creative side of my brain seems to work better when I'm out walking rather than being stuck at a desk. And this is something of a revelation. Maybe I should have been walking more over the years and I wouldn't have found myself in the predicaments that I've been in. Do you know, this is actually something that really has only been discovered, I think, properly or rediscovered in the last five or ten years. So, you know, if you look back over the history of, of great writers or mathematicians, you know, Rowan Hamilton, the great Irish mathematician, discovered uh, the theory of quaternions while doing his big walk from Dunsink into, into Trinity every day. Um, and, you know, modern life would be difficult without quaternions because we need them to power our, our computers and all the rest of it. Um, um, it turns out that regular movement activates parts of the brain that would otherwise be quiescent. Uh, so getting out and moving allows you to, uh, to have these kind of far-reaching associations that might not make it into consciousness if you're just sitting there uh, at your desk. And lots of studies show that compared to sitting at your desk, you probably come up with about twice as many ideas uh, as a result of having walked compared to just sitting quiescently. It's very hard uh, to, to monitor someone's brain uh, while they're out walking to find out what's going on. But what do we know about what happens inside, you know, down at the synaptic level, uh, what, what are at the hormonal level? What goes on when we're out breathing in the country air or, or listening to a good podcast or, or, or music or obviously news talk or whatever is on, on in your head? Yeah, so you, that, that's a great way of putting it. You can, you can take this at, at a whole lot of different levels. So, you know, the decision to get up and move 
requires a, a command signal to come from the frontal lobes of the brain. You have to stand up, you have to find your balance, and then you have to decide where you're going. So you have to figure out where you are in the world. So that's kind of from the inside out. Now, when you're moving around in the world, one of the things that's become apparent in the last couple of years is actually there's positive feedback from both the environment, but also from your own movement. So there are a, a wonderful uh, molecules called myokines, which are produced by muscle, but only when the muscle is moving. And these myokines protect and uh, kind of build resilience in the brain and in the body. Uh, so the, from those points of view, those things are very good for you. And what we also know is that going out for a walk in nature is also very, very powerfully good at building your sense of well-being. People's stress hormones fall, in particular the, the stress hormone uh, cortisol, and people report a greater feeling connect, of connectedness, not just with others and with the environment, but also with their own uh, body. They feel much more in tune with themselves as a result of getting out in nature. And we spend maybe 90% of our time indoors. You know, it's way, way too much. We should be out feeling the wind on our faces, the rain in our hair or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, again, I, I found that I could walk in the rain, which was something that I thought previously that I, I'd have melted or something else would have Yeah, you're not to made me. of sugar. It's a, it's a, it's a remarkable... <laughs> After the last week I put down eating so much chocolate, I might disagree with you on that one. And, and the other thing that happened to me, I became quite a bore, Shane, and those who know me, and I can see Michael Quilligan and Ronan Coveney in Dublin uh, nodding in agreement that I already was a bore. But I really started looking at nature. I, I found buzzards. I found foxes. I was listening for the little rustle in the grass to see what was there. I, I I know it sounds trite, but I became a little more connected with nature, possibly out of desperation to avoid listening to the radio and the COVID. But uh, it, it felt a real connection. Yeah, and that connection that you feel to nature is actually very restorative. And people uh, overlook how important the, the restorative effect of being connected to nature is. And uh, Everything we are starting to find out recently all points in a particular direction that regular exposure to nature uh, helps build your sense of well-being uh, right over the course of the day, the week, the month and, and the year. And that we actually have built an environment which is not good for us, this indoor environment we, we occupy. And we need actually to get outdoors more than we have done. Feel, as I said, the, the, the wind on your face, feel the chill and feel that wonderful bracing effect that you get after having been out for an hour or so. Uh, trudging the hills and uh, you're back home and you can have a nice cup of tea or whatever it happens to be. Some fascinating insights there from neuroscientist Shane O'Mara from The Heart Shoulder. I have to say, I, I, I happen to be watching it on New Year's Eve. Uh, I, I'm not particularly religious. I'm not religious at all, in fact. Uh, and I'm not easily offended. My jaw hit the ground when I saw that sketch. For what reason? Because I thought it was oh, I thought it was offensive and I thought it, it was blasphemous. Now, look, we can debate whether or not uh, it matters that it was blasphemous, but I thought it was pretty outrageous. Well, and that's that's fine, but but television stations are entitled to, and indeed in some cases have a duty to, uh, to to broadcast items that they know that some people won't like. You know, okay. that's not a reason to, to see. To but ban uh, here's my problem: uh, would would a similar sketch have been run about the Jewish religion or about Islam? And if it had, would you be out saying RT were perfectly right to broadcast it? Well, Tommy Ternan on RTE interviewed um, Imam Umar al-Qadri 
and uh, started the interview by doing a mock worship of him. And then uh, when Imam Umar al-Khadri said he was going to recite some, something from the Quran, Tommy Tiernan said, uh, no, you're not going to blow up after this, are you? Um, David McSavage did a sketch that, that involved a, a kind of Rhodes of Tralee type competition with, with a, uh, a himself playing an, a Muslim woman wearing a niqab and doing a ventriloquist act uh, with, with her, her mouth covered or his mouth covered by the, the niqab. So RT has shown items that are similarly comedy items that reference the Islamic religion and and strangely enough in in, in terms yeah, of Yeah, I of mean the the, the, the exception things. doesn't make the rule. I mean the the reality is uh, you you know you will you will regularly get uh jokes which some people find offensive and I, I agree uh you know we people get offended quite easily in many cases and and you don't have a right not to be offended by things but that it is it is quite common to have a pile on in relation or a, a, a joke about the Catholic Church. It is incredibly rare to have a joke about Islam. And, and my view on it is, if you're going to do it about the Catholic Church, you have to be willing to do it about other religions. And I don't think that happens. And I think well, if, if I think, uh, well, yeah, you've given two examples, to be yeah, fair. But, well, how many examples can you give me about Catholicism? Like, ah, come on. That many I don't, listen, are you, are you actually telling me there hasn't been dozens you, of them over well, the okay, years? Here's another, another way of looking at it. Do you think Life of Brian should, should no. continue to be banned? Yes. Uh, no, of course it shouldn't. No. But that, that has things that are, that are just as, if you, if you look at the relationship between the Mary character in Life of Brian and, uh, and the Roman centurion who supposedly made her pregnant, that, that's just as offensive, surely, to Catholics. I, I wouldn't have thought it's as offensive as suggesting that... Watch it again. Pardon? Watch it again. I, I have watched it many times. I know the film pretty well. I wouldn't have thought... But you do know then the relationship in that Yes, film. I do. I do. Yeah, uh, and I, I if you just let me ask, ask a question, sure, I, yeah. I'll put a question to you. I, I wouldn't have thought it was remotely as offensive as suggesting that God had raped Mary. That, that is pretty out there. Well, if you look at currently in Irish schools... The, uh, the Catholic Church uh, approves the religion course, Growing Love, for six-year-old infants in Irish schools. And what they are taught, what teachers are taught to tell children about that incident is that Mary, who's depicted in the book as a child and in, 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 in her bed, uh, it, that, that she was confused and afraid and didn't understand what was going on, but she said yes anyway because she mm. trusted this character that came into her room and told her that she was okay. going to be pregnant. Yeah. Now, do, do you, I, I don't think that that joke was a gross misrepresentation of what Catholics themselves teach that that passage I, 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 well, I, I think that's a ridiculous point, quite frankly. But uh, in terms no, 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 of... Hold on a sec. How do you think it's ridiculous given that just cited what the Catholic Church themselves say, it, w- which has a degree of recognition... What about, from, what about victims of sexual assault? Six-year-old children. What about victims of sexual assault? Would they have found that joke funny? Or, or did they have a right to be offended by that joke? Everyone, everyone has a right to be offended, but you don't. But you don't have a right to stop things from being broadcast simply because you're offended. Uh. The joke was not mocking rape. The joke was mocking lenient attitudes towards rape, and that type of dark humour is a perfectly valid and cathartic way of addressing painful. Even on a family show, on on any show. Some strong opinions there from Michael Nugent, the chair of Atheist Ireland. Talking to Shane Coleman on News Talk Breakfast. Ah, I miss the days of flying. The plane sounds uh, far, but at this stage, I'd be happy to travel in the overhead bin. Well, indeed, we all would. And that's, you know, even the thing if you live anywhere near an airport, that you kind of, it's noticeable how few planes you hear. 
uh, going on overhead. Gordon in Dublin says, uh, finally, uh, I've just had a mind-boggling experience in my local chemist. Uh, and by mind-boggling, I mean insert your favourite string of expletives. While waiting to be served, I overheard the guy... Uh, on the, uh, say to the pharmacist ah no on my luck I probably have the virus sure wasn't tested yesterday and then waiting for the result my jaw nearly hit the floor and then to compound everything he was wearing his mask down on his chin barely covering his mouth let alone his nose seriously people need to cop the hell on uh, uh, says Gordon yeah stay safe uh, and if you think you have the virus you might well give it to someone else that's kind of the point uh, of all this today from Uncrief on Tuesday, Pat Kenny spoke to consultant psychiatrist Colin O'Gara about gambling addiction in Ireland. Here's a short clip. I would have thought that um, during the earlier lockdown, when there was absolutely no sport going on, that the rate of gambling would go down. Did that happen? Uh, not to our knowledge, Pat. If you look at any of the um, bodies within the UK and here, so any of the statutory bodies that would take data on calls, for instance, to the services, uh, most of the indicators went up, actually. And uh, the big concern there was it went from uh, this dearth of sports betting uh, very quickly shifting on to other forms of gambling. So examples would be the casino suite products online and online slot machines, which the literature would suggest are more problematic when it comes to gambling disorder. Um, later on, then, we had other anomalies, such as this virtual Grand National, which was run, and uh, a whole plethora of people introduced to the idea of virtuals, which um, you know people up to that point wouldn't know what that was. So if you go into a bookmaker now, um, most of the, most of the uh, high street bookmakers will have a screen in the corner, and you will see computerized horses or dogs running around a screen. And you can pick your your horse or dog before this event, and um, uh, often these will fill in between um, traditional um, horse, horse races, so actual horse races. So the gambling product, as we see it pass, certainly during COVID, um, it's moved at the fast pace that it, it has always moved at. But um, certainly the, the online piece now is at such an extent that it is highly addictive in our view mm. um, and very little restrictions on it. Now, that little screen in the corner where the virtual racing goes on, um, is that preordained? In other words, uh, back in the day, I, I'm sure you went to these race nights where they played um, either black and white or uh, coloured races uh, and you bet on number one to ten or whatever it was and it was all for charity and it was all great fun but if you looked at the reel of film in advance you knew who was going to win with digital technology is it a bit like ordinary bookmaking in the sense that the more money that goes on horse number four the less likely it is to win yeah i i, I believe they can do that but they can also just have preordained odds on it, um, and you know, people will bet accordingly. But the the the, the key issue here is that, um, you know, you, you could say it's like a a draw of of any type or a raffle. But you know, what we see in people that we treat with gambling addiction problems is that you move from a situation where there's some sort of examination of form, some sort of a somewhat recreational piece to it, an enjoyment, a sense of being in that moment, a sense of distraction into a completely and utterly compulsive state, 
where there is no real sense of what's going on. The person is just moving rapidly between um, the activities and uh, the stakes, then people try to increase the stakes as much as possible. So typically in young men, this is what we see. In Ireland at the moment, we don't have any restrictions on how much young men can bet. There isn't a restriction on the use of credit cards as there is in the UK recently. And critically, there's no review of our gambling laws whatsoever. Although, look, look to be fair, yes, it's in the programme for government, but it has been in the past. And Alan Shatter's now famous bill of 2013, we're referring back to, is that we're almost, you know, we're, we'll be approaching a decade soon if we don't get any legislation in. Mm. So the whole situation, it would be reasonable to say it's a bit of a mess. Um, the advertising side of it is, is, is just, I think any reasonable person at this stage will look at, if you, if you try to sit down and watch a premiership game on a Saturday afternoon, with your children, uh, you will be bombarded with gambling ads of highly sophisticated ads. And frankly, that kind of a situation is completely imbalanced. Myself and many other people, Pat, are not arguing for a complete ban on gambling. We're very pragmatic people. Um, we know that uh, we also treat people as psychiatrists that have issues with um, you know, the impact of economy. A lot of us were around for the crash in 2008 and treat, treated people through that. So we know that, that, that gambling is very much embedded in our, in our culture and, uh, and our economy. But what we're looking for here is a balance. It's completely out of kilter at the moment mm. and something needs to be done. Some startling insights there from consultant psychiatrist Colin O'Gara from The Pat Kenny Show. Now, do you like the sound of church bells and would you like to learn more about the art of ringing them? Well, on Monday, Claire McKenna did a call out for bell ringers on Lunchtime Live. Here's Michael and Helen. Well, it's such a lovely sound to hear. It'd be shame to hear them stop. I want to bring in Helen. Stay on the line there, Michael. Helen, you're very welcome to Lunchtime Live on News Talk. How are you? I'm good, thanks Claire. How are you? I'm good. You became a bell ringer over the last three years after seeing an ad in in the paper. I did. I saw this ad in the paper and I thought, you know, I'd love to give that a try. And I went down to the tower, tower on the, the day that I was to meet Michael there. And, and I thought, this can either go one of two ways. I can either be good at it and I'll come back or else I'll be terrible and I'll never see these people again. <laughs> but um, Michael is very good at training all the beginners. And um, after practicing for a very short while, um, the, the other senior ringers started to come in for the service ring on the Sunday. And and uh, Michael said to me, stay where you are. And he said, I'll help you ring this bell. So he talked me through it. And, and now I know I've since heard that's very unusual that someone would come in, you know, and just have a little bit of practice and then go ahead and do it. But, but I have to say it was brilliant. I, I was so encouraged by the welcome that I got from everybody there um, that I went back, obviously, and, and kept ringing bells. So there's more than one person in the bell terror at one time. Yes, because well, in non-COVID times, we would have up to eight people because we have eight bells. So we would have eight people, um, one taking each bell. Um, obviously, in COVID times, um, you know, well, it's depending on the restrictions, but when we were able to do some sort, you know, if we were two metres apart, we could only have four bell ringers. Um, at the moment, obviously, we've none. So we're actually ringing online at the moment uh, to, to men in America, two bell ringers, and set up this virtual ringing room and, and you can choose the bells you want to ring there. So it was, it's a great way of keeping in contact with everybody, 
why we can't actually ring in the tower at the moment. Wow. And is it a bit of a workout, Helen, to be pulling the rope or, or what's it like? Well, well, it is a little bit of a workout. We, we do kind of joke, you know, the Taney gym is open when we're on uh, down there for a practice because it is it is a workout. But I don't think it's a, as difficult as people think it is. Um, like Michael mentioned there about, you know, people think that we're going up and down on the rope. You know, we're not actually going up and down on the rope. But, and, and also... Although, like, the, the first bell is lighter, is the lightest one, and then it goes, you know, they get heavier and heavier, up to bell eight. But, but when you pull the rope, you're pulling the, the bell off the balance. So it, it starts to swing from side to side. So when you're pulling your rope, um, you know, say on, on the back stroke and on the hand stroke, you're just keeping that motion of the bell going. So it's not as, as hard as people think it is. And is it an enjoyable experience? Oh, brilliant. We've great fun down there. Um, you know, you're learning new things. There's a great team there at the moment. We actually get to go and visit other towers too. So we've been down on day trips to Kilkenny, Waterford, Limerick. And we've done some uh, training down in Bray as well. Um, we, we went away on a weekend a couple of years ago to Sussex and uh, we rang about five towers over there. So, it's, you know, it is good fun. And there's a good group there at the moment. Good woman, Helen. So you're glad you answered that ad in the paper. It certainly opened up a new a new circle to you. Um, Michael, we're getting a lot of texts in from people who are interested, but they're wondering about the salary. Is this a, a voluntary basis, this bell ringing, or is there pay involved? There's no pay involved at all. Um, it's all it's all voluntary. And um, it's, um, so all the terrors, it's just, it's just all voluntary and all, all the terrors. And many years ago, uh, you know, when building started first off, you know, around the 1600s or so, you know, um, payment was given to bellringers then. But, you know, um, as the years go on now, it's just it's just voluntary from that end. Um, yeah, we've so all got phones team, in our pockets now giving yeah. us the time, whereas uh, then <laughs> they were more important. But I suppose, that you know, there's times where the bells are incredible, like the turn of the new year. And was that done online this year? Yes, so what um, we did was um, the ringing room, what Helen was talking about there, we, um, we decided we'd um, ring in um, the new year. And so we had looked for some volunteers and some new people who had come along. And um, just before the new year, we had a group of people who had never seen a bell tower, had been in the bell tower at all, and came online to ring bells. So they joined me about half 11. And for the, the, the joy in their face as they were ringing in the ringing room and they rang in the new year and I just um, talked them through it and uh, the number of people there just rang in the new year on virtual bells and it was a, a delight to see them. Claire McKenna from Lunchtime Live. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Sunday, Documentary on News Talk explores the global effort to improve brain health and reduce the impact of dementia. Here is the short clip from New Knowledge produced by Morris Kelleher and Sean O'Boyle. Uh, so two of our fellows were architects, Irish architects based in the UK, but about to move back to Ireland. And they, they identified a, a number of aspects of buildings, including hospital buildings, but also people's homes and nursing homes that actually create some of the symptoms that we would otherwise attribute to dementia. So they, they, they've identified that we have very, very good regulations now in buildings for physical disability, but we don't have the same regulations for sensory and cognitive deficits. Uh, so, for example, they did an audit of, they've done an audit of an Irish town and shown in which ways that it's kind of 
prevents the normal functioning of people with limited sensory and cognitive deficits. But even in a, a, a modern hospital in Dublin, in the in, in the old in, in the geriatric unit, they saw they, they they saw, for instance, there was an area of very sh- you know they tend to be white surfaces, shiny, and they saw this really reflect highly reflective floor. And to a person with failing sensory or cognitive deficits, it looks like water or ice. And so they become slightly disoriented or frightened or or, or appear to staff to be disoriented. Or, for instance, a door that you would like them to to use doesn't have any colour contrast around it. And so they have difficulty finding where they need to go, the toilet, for example. And conversely, doors you don't want them to go out you know that you, you you can disguise them by making them flush with the and, and, and so 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 you're 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 preventing secondary disorientation which actually can have biological effects in the brain you know a brain can keep functioning for many years if you can keep it uh, without certain stressors so that's why for instance some older people can appear to be fine and then they move house late in life and suddenly they, everything falls apart and they become disoriented. And that's because our brains are attuned to the environment and the networks in our brains uh, are very, very easily, they're kind of fragile at a certain stage of, you know, of the disease. And so you can, uh, and so that can set in line a cascade of events in the way a broken hip can for an older person such that they never, never come out. So our, our architect fellows, they are working with health services, with, but also with the WHO and with architectural organisations to, to try across the globe to get introduce these guidelines for sensory and cognitive impairment, which, you know, if, if not if, when that's done, will significantly reduce a proportion of the people who end up unnecessarily disoriented and with, if you like, their disorientation and their confusion being wrongly attributed entirely to their own heads when in fact it's an interaction with the environment that's that's remediable. So that's one example. From New Knowledge on Documentary on News Talk. Guys, we're running out of time. One last piece I do want to bring up as well is Sunday Independent, page six of their sports supplement. Neil Francis writing what's actually a really, really lovely, really interesting piece about the Ireland 1952 rugby tour to Argentina and Chile as well, which uh, was uh, done at the last minute. But um, just, it's absolutely a fascinating story, culminating with essentially a very young Che Guevara coming on at scrum half to take on Ireland in a in a test match against Argentina. Yeah, it's a it, it's a lovely piece, Neil. Um, it's a piece actually. When I started reading it, I, I thought it was going to be about a man called Paul Trainer, mm. who was one of the Irish players who went on that tour. And and Neil Francis mentions meeting his son John, and and you're thinking, well. This is going to be the story of Paul Trainer, who who never got his caps for for playing on that tour. Um, well, he only played the first test. He was dropped for the second test and went off for twelve days to Patagonia, mountaineering and and skiing. I think. Um, no, that was it, that was it, that was different. That was a, a Patrick Lawler. Uh, was oh, that was Patrick uh, yeah. Lawler. So he oh, uh, sorry. he played in the first test, got dropped for the second test, 
And oh, said, you're right, well, yes, Patrick Lawler. Yeah. Well, f that, I'm off. There were 12 days to go before the end of the tour, and Lawler went walkabout, mountaineering, mountaineering, and hiking in Patagonia. Nobody saw him for 12 days. He turned up an hour <laughs> before the squad were due to fly home from Buenos Aires. <laughs> imagine, so I might, my imagine, imagine, imagine Johnny Sexton doing that now. <laughs> on the Lions tour. Well, I, I think what it brings at home is the the the, the test series. Uh, they were, they were given a checklist. The players were given a checklist. And the first one was, don't forget your passport. Point three, please bring your own shaving and washing utensils, pyjamas, slippers, and a pullover. <laughs> Point five, as golf balls are hard to obtain in Argentina, you are advised to bring them with you if you wish to play. <laughs> this, is, it's, this is magnificent stuff. But it's, uh, it's a reminder of uh, what rugby used to be like. It took them six days to get to Argentina and their arrival just happened to coincide with the death of Eva Perón. And uh, so Argentina went into virtually two weeks of mourning, state mourning, and and she lay in state for 10 days. And I think 65,000 people a day filed past her her coffin. And um, it was just a, a perfect storm of terrible timing, I think, for that that group to arrive there in 1952. Mm. And even and just... There's, there's, there's loads in this, Neil. It, it, it's yeah. it's like there's... He talks about getting there. It was like an Indiana Jones movie. You know, Dublin to London, London to Paris, Lisbon to Dakar, Senegal, Natal, Brazil, Rio de Janeiro, Buenos Aires, Santiago. And it just strikes a complete and utter chaos. Like, they didn't know where they were going half the time. Um, it's, there's loads of subplots in this. Like, you could spend all day talking about it, about, you know, the Ulster players and when they play and some wouldn't travel and you know, the Eva Peron thing, and then you have Che Guevara coming on as a sub and playing against. And it's just, it's just a very interesting, it's not a real kind of, you know, boys on tour uh, kind of, you know, old old story either. It's quite, it's really interesting. Um, and and at a time when most feature writers used up everything in their locker last year when there was no sport on, there's still stuff out there to write about. What a wonderful story. Neil Tracy, Vincent Hogan and Mick O'Keefe from the Sunday Paper Review from Off the Ball. Don't let the sun catch you crying The night's the time for your tears Your heart may be broken tonight But tomorrow in the morning The 
great Ronnie Spector as heard on The Tom Dunn Show. On Saturday, Bobby Carr spoke to business consultant and author Matt Casey for Down to Business. Your, your views on uh, scrapping performance reviews, is there a danger there that, you know, that you end up with misinterpretation of, of, of performance? As in, you know, uh, my idea of my contribution to the business might be very different to my bosses. And because we don't sit down and review it, that, that, that conflict could arise because it isn't clear. Yep, absolutely, I do. I think what I, what, I, uh, what I sort of said about that in the past, when I when I because I had that worry, I used to be a huge fan of performance reviews, and what I realised was I was kind of comparing what could happen if I took it away to a perfect world of the performance reviews actually doing what they said they would do, but the truth of that really isn't the case. Performance reviews have a pretty terrible performance record. I think. Uh, Gallup in their state of the workplace survey, I think it was only 14% of people surveyed like across like hundreds of thousands of people. Only 14% of people said that the performance review in any way inspired them to get better. So I thought, well, it could 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 it go wrong if you don't have them? Could people feel you know could could you have performance issues by not having them? Absolutely. But I think you have fewer than 14% and like going wrong. <laughs> like, I think you have more than 14%. Sorry, that go well. Um, and I think you, you save so much time on this really quite alienating process. It's also gained a lot. I mean, I think we all, I know that feeling of having had a performance review. I'm like, well, I've, I know how to gain these objectives so that I've succeeded, but I'm not sure it really relates to my performance properly. So, um, so what are you suggesting, Matt, that a performance review would be replaced with? So the way uh, the way I, I get it, it comes down to technology. So I, I looked at it was the moment that I kind of had this realization was actually looking at Uber. So they have, I think it was something like six billion rides or something last year. Um, God knows how many million drivers and riders, and they improved all of their behaviours through simply having a score where people, when they interact with each other, people provide a, provide feedback on that. So there's no performance review of anyone. And one of the things I noticed that noticed on that was they made drunk people in taxis behave better, and they did it without ever having a conversation with a single one of them. And if you tried to do that with performance reviews, <laughs> it was it just wouldn't work. Like you would get nowhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think the the way again it's adopting technology so that the people who work with each other have a framework for giving each other feedback, which can be used not to measure people's performance externally but for each individual to say okay well this is how this is how people are perceiving me the people i work with and i broke it down so what i think the three things in any performance the three things of performance that actually matter are which is can someone do the job i did actually have the skills to do the things they're supposed to be able to do Uh, will they do it so do they actually behave the way that they're supposed to behave do they you know do they turn up when they say they're going to be there do they finish things when they say they're going to finish things um, and then do you just want to work with them? Like, are they pleasant to work with? Do they make your life difficult? Do they make it easier? Um, so I give people the framework so once they finish working with anyone, they're prompted to, to give scores on, on those areas, which the individuals themselves can then see so they can get a feel of like, okay, well, you know, I'm, people think I can do my job. Uh, people know I do it, but it turns out no one wants to work with me, so I might need to look at my attitude. Nice. Um, 
You know, for me personally, it was quite big because I think in my early career, I know if I'd been getting that feedback, that's exactly what I'd have seen. I'd have seen people saying, yeah, he can do his job. He does what he says he's going to do, but I really don't like working with him because it's difficult. <laughs> and right. I think if I'd learned if I'd learned that from my peers, uh, I think I'd have like you know would have saved me a bunch of years of being frustrated at work. Wow, some intriguing insights there from business guru Matt Casey from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr, and of course you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from ten till twelve. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. Do you know, I think it's safe to keep them at home. Um, I think the teachers and preschool teachers need to be protected, including staff in creches. I don't think uh, they're being taken very seriously and the government needs to realise that to help out people in creches. And you're a member of staff, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a, I, I manage a creche. I'm on maternity leave right now and I'm actually really anxious to go back to work. Um, because I don't think there's a lot of protection in place to protect staff. Um, PP is a big issue when it comes to working in a crash because one, you're dealing with such little children and you also want to be protected and interact and talk and play. You know, all that's restricted right now. Do you think schools and do you think crashes should reopen for frontline staff or vulnerable kids? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, nurses and anyone on the front line, uh, they need their children minded. We need more support. You know, like everyone needs support and help. Like my whole Instagram is full of people I know going out, breaking the 5k boundaries. Um, some of them are even on the Galway coast now, having a good old time. So they're that on the really Galway annoys coast me. And they're young adults. Yeah, my age, you know, uh, middle 20s, and they're out partying, drinking, in a social little bubble themselves, and it's really, really frustrating. Do you feel like ringing them and saying, cop on? I've mentioned in a few comments, you know, like I have commented on posts, you know. So. I'll cope fine, it's just about them and their mental health, they should be with their friends I mean if people can walk into a shopping centre and shop around, the kids should be allowed to go to school together, so I understand the teachers are nervous and are worried but it was fine the last time, I don't understand why it's different this time I just think it's disgraceful, they should be in school So you want your kids back in school, back in they preschool? They should be back with their friends they should, this is the most important time in her life, she's five and she's missed out on a whole year already, I just think it's ridiculous if you can go into a shopping centre and just someone standing up your back in a queue for five, ten minutes, why can't we try to go to school and just sit separately but still be interacting with our friends? I just don't agree with it. Come here, I think it was always going to happen, whether you wanted it or not. They knew this was going to happen, but, like, yeah, you can't stop people seeing their family. There's people out there that are dying, do you know what I mean? And they're dying on their own in hospital and they're not getting to, like, to have their family around them. It's just, it's not right. I just don't agree with any of it to be honest I really don't so what do you want to happen just let the kids go back to school let them live a normal life the frontline workers as well they need the, the kids in school to go to work doctors and they need childcare facilities for the, the, them to work so we need them back in work as well you know so I think they should 100% close for a month you know we've opened up the doors before Christmas and now look at, look at it, where we are at this stage of the game we're back to square one multiply by two so Close it all up, shut it down, get it under control, do what they did in Australia, get it back right again. Simple fact. Henry McKean reporting. Now, one of the best parts of our programming year returned over the Christmas period. The Barry Egan tapes. Think raw, intense and super emotional. Here's Barry Egan and Christy Dignam. You were almost dead at one point. You, yeah. made, you, you flatlined. Well, I flatlined. And yeah, I said to the nurse, I used to hold, the nurse was holding my hand. And she was kind of rubbing my hands, you know. And I says, I'm not dying, am I? 
and she looked away. She just went. <laughs> so that freaked me out then, you know. And I'll never forget it. It's like it was like something off a cartoon. Like it was like a floody of paper, because you're coming in, opening tubes and throwing the paper, and opening syringes and throwing the paper. And it was just this of paper, like confetti in the air. And I remember looking at the flower after my wife came up to the hospital. But yeah, so the nurse started talking to me about an incident that happened. And she said, you couldn't have seen that. You weren't even here, you know. You were dead at that time. Your heart had stopped. Yeah. But if you'd been at home as opposed to Beaumont Hospital, oh, yeah. you'd have had a, so you would have been died of a heart attack. Yeah, because basically I was in Beaumont and I was, in, I was on a heart monitor, which is how they seen that, I flatlined. Because I was lying in bed and the nurse flew in. And I was flatlined at that stage. But my cardiologist lived in Castleknock, which is right beside Manchester County Hospital. So he could get there. He was there within 10 minutes. And I remember I was lying in the bed, right? And this card, this said, uh, the cardiologist came in and he had an anaesthetist with him. And I couldn't breathe. So my heartbeat was gone down to 40 beats a minute. It's come back, but it was at 40 beats. It should be at about 80 or 90 beats a minute. So I'm kind of... <laughs> Because my heart wasn't beating, the oxygen wasn't getting thrown around my body. So I ain't suffocating on my own kind of blood, right? So I'm like this in the bed. And he put it, I had a, an IV here, so he put it adrenaline into me, but it wasn't doing, it wasn't getting in. It wasn't doing that, and so there was a blockage or something in the IV in my arm. So this anaesthetist came in, and I'm like this, and he slipped my neck there and put a, a thing in, like a, a tube in, and immediately, I was like, <sighs> and I start breathing properly because this. What he did was he put a defibrillator wire into me, into me jugular vein, and that went down to my heart and kicked my heart off, and my heart came back again. But it was literally, <sighs> and then I just start breathing, and an amazing feeling. Yeah, because you think you're drowning, you know what I mean, and then you start breathing normal, and it's just an amazing feeling. Did you have any thoughts of your past in that in that moment? No, I was, a bit, I was a bit kind of disturbed about that because I was always into that. When I read about people that had this white tunnel thing, you know, and, and I always was like, I'd love that to happen to me. And I, it was a real downer, you know. I didn't see this beautiful place or any of that kind of I know your, your mother baited you out the door and your, to Mass and your father baited you out the door back from Mass. Yeah. But do you believe in God? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, no. I'm not, I'm a, I'd love to be. I'd love to have that, that, like... My wife's mother and my own mother, were, they went to their deaths, glorious ignorance, I think, you know. But they, they, they just loved the fact that you were going to their heaven, you know. And I don't believe that, so I believe you're just going to be maggot-filled. So I'd love to have the peace they had when they went to their graves. But when I was dying and when I was sick, I got real religious. I swear to God, I got real religious. And it reminded me of, do you remember, there was a Simpsons um, episode where Lisa, you know, was talking about the desperation of a dying man, you know. Yeah. And it's true, because I was praying and praying and praying when I was sick. But, like, I just, I can't, I can't get through the logic. But it's not the, the thing, there is no logic. The non-logic of yeah. religion, you know. And then I, you know, when I see what, it, what it's been doing in the world for. Yeah. Like, the one thing that, when I was, when I was rubbing that nurse's hand, and I thought I was dying... The thing that really blew me away was the fear I had. I'd never had that type of fear before, the fear of dying, you know. Because nobody wants to die. No, but it's a, it's, it's, an, it's a terror, it's abject terror you have. Because I could see it. I could literally see 
where I was going. Do you know what I mean? This is this is the yeah, if I go down here I'm dead. Do you know what I mean? And when I come back to that, the relief of it was Is that amazing. the strength that's kept you going six, seven probably, years? Probably. And, and if you go back to all the other stuff you've been through? I think it could be, you know, because there's been a lot of, like, I, like we've been in there to plane crash. I've gone through a heroin addiction, a crack cocaine addiction, a cancer, two different types of cancer. Like, it's weird. Like, I'd, I'd be, I'd be kind of trying to walk through life and hide if there is a God. But you, from him, you know? Shane McGowan and Keith Richards will be still surviving if there's a well, nuclear holocaust and the ants, of course. Us, us and, and the, the cockroaches, yeah. yeah. You should That's form a it. super band. Yeah. Terrific stuff there from the Barry Egan tapes. And if you want to catch more of Barry's fine interviews, all you have to do is go to the podcast section on newstalk.com. OK, I'm going to leave you with now the great Mike Hanrahan, who performed live for The Hard Shoulder. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Bobby. Uh, this is a song I wrote uh, earlier on in lockdown. It's called Chase the Moon, and it's about getting through rough waters and getting to the far side. Here we go. Chase the Moon, folks. Heave away and haul away, Makara. Heave away beyond this raging tide. When we hear the oarsmen singing, land ahoy, heave When we reach the swells up there across the water, far beyond the foam we'll rise and fall. Let mercy be the wave to take us home So let's roll Chase the moon Chase the moon Chase the moon Chase the moon Let's chase the moon Let's chase With Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. The VHI Women's Mini Marathon is back on Sunday, June 5th. Take the first step towards the finish line by signing up now at vhiwomensminimarathon.ie.